Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. This is Dr. Mark Shapiro. We've talked a lot on this podcast in previous episodes around how quickly medicine is changing, the, the interactions between the world of technology and the world of healthcare, uh, and the ways in which this is changing and how fast it's changing. I have a really interesting guest today. Uh, my guest is Eric Reinertsen, who is an MD-PhD student uh, at Emory University in Atlanta. Uh, he is also one of the guys who is helping to drive that forward. There's a large cohort of people who are kind of coming up through the ranks of medicine and medical training who are taking paths that really didn't even exist 10, 15 years ago. Um, and so I wanted to have Eric come and join us and talk a little bit about the paths that he is on and what he thinks the future is going to look like and some of the things that he is doing now. So Eric, welcome. Thank you, Dr. Shapiro. It's a pleasure to be here. So you're a really busy guy right now, it looks like, right? You're doing your MD-PhD work and you are, right, so that's enough to start off with, right? So MD-PhD sure. means at the same time you're getting your PhD and you're chasing your md Yep, that's correct. <laughs> At the same time you're doing that, which that's a pathway that has been in existence for a while. There's lots of different people that will pursue those sorts of tracks and then go and do difficult, different things with them. What you're doing is at the same time is you've also launched a nonprofit organization called Forge. So take us through a little bit first about what is Forge exactly? What are you doing with Forge? Yeah, so Forge is a nonprofit organization that uh, I founded with some colleagues uh, in 2014. And our original mission was to connect the communities of healthcare and technology. Uh, I think they have a lot to offer to each other, and at least in Atlanta, uh, we hadn't seen them reach their full interactive potential. Um, but recently, we've sort of pivoted what we're doing with Forge, and now we're focusing on what I like to call evidence-based entrepreneurship, where we help digital health startups validate their technology by getting them into the clinic and launching pilot studies. So we also help fund digital health startups. Now, is this something that is, a, is, is common in medical training now where medical students, in addition to the hefty curriculum, which everyone has to kind of work through and, and learn at their own rate, is this a common thing where medical students are moving into, I guess, this, this, this broad area of medical technology, entrepreneurship, startups, things like that? Or are, do you think you're maybe more of an outlier? So, I think it's very uncommon, uh, but I don't say that in terms of praise for myself. Um, I think it's because, as you well know, going through medical school, there's simply not time to do outside activities. And I think society would agree broadly that we want doctors who are focused on becoming the best clinicians possible. Uh, that said, I think there are opportunities within the medical space for students to play a role in uh, technology and innovation and these sort of efforts. Um, I'm in a privileged position where I have more flexibility right now during my PhD years. A lot of my colleagues doing the uh, straight MD path or other dual degrees like an MD, MPH or MD, MBA, uh, they don't have that same level of flexibility. Um, and another thing is I have a background in engineering. You know, we're both UCLA Bruins. Um, and I chose Emory because I'm doing my PhD at Georgia Tech partially. And they have a very strong engineering program with a lot of interest in healthcare and biomedical technology. So 
I'm sort of playing off of the natural strengths of the existing ecosystem. And I think a lot of medical students at institutions that have good engineering programs, good business schools, take advantage of those resources. They just do it in different ways. Um, I think it is uncommon on the whole. If you look at a graduating class of 100 medical students, I uh, you know, a majority of them are not going to be doing, uh, you know, technology entrepreneurship, starting companies, forming nonprofits, but everybody impacts healthcare in their own way. Um, and it's interesting to see how people do it. Uh, one more comment I'll make is, um, you know, what are, what are some other people doing and why is it so noticeable? I think it's because doing unusual things attracts more media attention. So there's almost a bit of a, a bias in, you know, things being represented that are in vogue. So, you know, some of my colleagues do amazing work here in Atlanta and also my colleagues at other institutions, you know, whether it's coordinating uh, volunteer efforts to help the homeless, whether it's working with other healthcare professionals and doing mobile clinics. But, you know, these things aren't going to be going viral on Twitter or becoming <laughs> a TechCrunch article. Yet they're equally important, so I think that's that's worth mentioning. No, I, um, I actually think that it is. It's important to mention that too. This is a sexy topic, and obviously you and I are talking about this. But you're absolutely right that as people are going through medical school, and, and I would say most graduate programs, these are people who are, are highly motivated, and they're going to be doing a lot of different things. You're right. right this right. is an en vogue topic, but people mm -hmm. are driven to not just get behind a book and learn what's there. They're, they're driven to get into their communities and start making a difference as quickly as possible. And, you know, I finished medical school in 03 and, and that desire was absolutely there. I mean that, but that being said, this, what, what, what you're doing and, and some of your colleagues are doing certainly does touch on a hot button topic. I can imagine the desire from the world of technology to draw on medical students and people who have a medical background is pretty significant. But do you find that you're getting support from the institution? Does, is, is Emory really behind this? Are people who are trying to do this while in medical training, is it something that's being supported or is it something where maybe there's a little bit of resistance? You know, I've experienced both yeah. and they're all from the right places. So in the beginning uh, with Forge, I approached the medical school and tried to solicit some support and also to ask permission when we wanted to form this as a 501c3 tax-exempt nonprofit, you know, we were incorporating a legal and financial entity, and to do so required permission from the uh, School of Medicine administration. And they were supportive, but it's interesting, they were supportive of us as people more so than the specific things we do. So they wanted to make sure that our priorities were in the right place. Uh, that we weren't doing this for purely personal financial gain or uh, that this wasn't detracting from our medical studies. And we just had to convey to them that uh, we fully understood their concerns and that we were addressing them. And from there on out, they were completely supportive. In fact, uh, our greatest financial and, uh, I guess, logistical sponsors are actually uh, the School of Medicine leadership. So uh, with our new program, we're trying to get digital health startups into the clinic, and we need to fund them. We need to support them. That means working closely with the IRB. It means working with uh, the information technology and security teams and systems within uh, Emory Healthcare. And so far, the leadership has been extraordinarily supportive. They recognize that what we're trying to do, you know, advance patient care through technology, pretty much reflects what they're trying to do. And mm -hmm. you know, we're on the same team here. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really about communication. Now, I think that's great that there is that recognition that while this is different and 
quite honestly, there might be people who don't have a great sense of what it is you're trying to do just yet because this is so new and novel that mm-hmm. there is that sense of, hey, we're on the same team and, and let's get let's kind of let's move this forward and see where it goes. There's another thing that you're doing I was, uh, that I think is great that your uh, department is supporting is that you've actually launched an elective uh, for your for the medical students on innovation and entrepreneurship in medicine. Mm-hmm. That did not exist when I was a medical student. Um, not because my medical school wasn't a forward thinking institution. Mm-hmm. It's just that opportunity wasn't there yet. What has been the sort of level of receptivity, interest from both administration and also most importantly other medical students to have an opportunity like that? Mm-hmm. I, I think everybody's been interested and supportive, at, yeah. at least here. So when we first started out with this concept, um, uh, when I was starting my second year of medical school here at Emory, we have electives. And I was looking through the list, and you know, given my growing interest in technology and entrepreneurship, I was looking for something like that, but I didn't quite see it. Um, and in the years prior, uh, Dr. Michael Johns, who is the executive chancellor, vice president, um, CEO of Emory Healthcare, you know, he holds a million titles, a uh, very important person. He used to teach an elective course called the business of medicine, and it gave you a much more strategic macro view of the world and how healthcare fits in it. And that's just what I'm interested in. That's how I think. But he wasn't teaching that at the time. So we felt that there was a bit of a vacuum in this space. Um, now that's not the exact same thing as entrepreneurship. Uh, and I happened to do something else for my elective. I, I ended up doing like a neurosurgery research project, which is kind of unrelated, but fast forward a year when I had a bit more flexibility during my PhD time, I looked at the network, the contacts, the resources that I had consolidated through my work with forge and thought that this might be something really valuable for the medical students. Um, so we went ahead and we launched a pilot uh, with Dr. Arun Mohan, who um, is one of the faculty uh, instructors for the course, and we actually collected a little bit of feedback from the students. Now, it's really hard to, in my opinion, it's really hard to make uh, a meaningful interpretation from surveys. Uh, you know, I think they're very limited in what you can gather. Who knows if 10 years later, any of this will be useful for the students. But I think they certainly enjoyed it. And our focus for this elective is really on exposure and education uh, and awareness. You know, and I don't think that our, our goal for this elective is to have medical students drop out, stop what they're doing, <laughs> and go found a technology company. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't sit well with the administration. And just personally, I don't think that's really an optimal fit for the students' talents and time. What I do think, though, is that Medical students, trainees, and physicians can play a really important role in helping technology companies understand the healthcare environment, navigate it, work with it, and really bring value to patients and systems. Uh, And I think those opportunities are starting to become more visible, but at least as far as the medical education side, are relatively underexplored. I think you're you're touching on one of the things that I'm actually the most curious about it. And it's this balance between medical students, uh, doctors early in their career, finding a balance between practice, going out, seeing patients, working in a hospital, working in a clinic, and taking on other opportunities like this. And there there might be a little bit of a collision there. There was a recent article on the number of graduates um, from UCSF who are actually not going into a residency program and, and they're going out uh, into the world of, of startups and entrepreneurship. Nothing wrong with that. But do you sense that there might be a little bit of a collision at some point in terms of, like you said, you're in medical school. The goal is to become a doctor and to go out and serve in a community. Is there going to be a little bit of a collision at some point? 
I, I think there already is culturally, yeah. uh, and, and that's actually one of the challenges that I hope to address through this elective, where uh, any time that a physician is involved in a career path outside of traditional clinical medicine, I think you can sometimes sense some distaste among other physicians, at least from certain administrators uh, at certain institutions. Um, for example, you know, I have some colleagues who went through medical school and then they pursued careers in finance or management consulting or technology or venture capital or something like that. And you hear terms being thrown around a lot like, oh, that person sold out or mm -hmm. yeah, that person couldn't handle a residency and things like that. And, you know, I understand where the other physicians are coming from. You know, medicine is really not a good career if you're interested in you know, maximizing personal financial gain. It's a lot of work. And to some extent, I think to a massive extent, it's a very altruistic career. Um, and we absolutely need clinicians who are completely focused on delivering the best care possible, as opposed to, you know, restructuring some sort of biotechnology hedge fund. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I think it is important for some physicians to play a role in these more strategic positions. Um, as far as a coll collision goes, and going back to what we were talking about a little earlier, you know, what is the ideal role of a medical student or a physician? Um, I, I want to actually use this moment on the podcast to give a shout out to some other people at other institutions who are doing really good work. And this ranges uh, from a student level and, and up. So recently, I've had some conversations on this very topic with uh, Stephen Delvin. And he's, I want to say he's a second year. He's over at, in Boston, Harvard Medical School. And we were talking about what is the role of the medical student in innovation and what can they do? And my opinion is that you're very constrained by your coursework, uh, the lack of deep discipline, disciplinary training uh, in clinical medicine or another topic can prevent you from, I think, making a significant impact. But he presents an opposite point of view, which I, I do agree with to some extent, where medical students, because they're not entrenched in the ways of clinical practice for decades, actually can see problems with fresh eyes and may be able to make the most impact. And when you look around, there are some startups that are being uh, extraordinarily impactful, and they're founded and run by medical students. Um, Encora Medical, or is it Encora Health? I'm really sorry if I butchered the name. Um, <laughs> David Lindsay and uh, Chris, what's his name? Uh, anyways, one of them is an MD-PhD student at University of Pennsylvania, and he's doing some very innovative things using big data to guide radiation oncology care. Another one is Memora Health, um, a collaboration, again, between a Georgia Tech student uh, and a, uh, a student at Harvard Medical School, and they're trying to tackle the issue of medication adherence. Um, you have a bunch of people over at Stanford, UCSF, you know, obviously the Bay Area, it's quite common. And, and then you have students who, you know, may not be taking the full dive in terms of uh, founding a startup, but are still doing very innovative things within the academic medical community. Um, and these are actually a bunch of people I follow on Twitter, and I recommend anybody to check them out. Um, Amol Antronker, I'm really bad with names, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's okay. And uh, Jared Shenson, they're, uh, they're both at Vanderbilt doing uh -huh. some really interesting things in terms of um, medical student journalism, as well as design-focused patient experiences. You know, so, so long story short, um, I think anything can be construed as a potential collision, especially mm -hmm. because we're now looking at medicine through a new perspective of interdisciplinary innovation. So it's no longer, okay, I'm a public health expert or 
um, I take care of patients with diabetes. Now it's I'm an architect or I'm a designer or I'm an engineer and I'm a physician. Mm-hmm. This and is, or, I think, one of the unintended consequences of medical schools, rightly so, going after candidates who came from, non, quote, non-traditional backgrounds, not necessarily someone who did an undergraduate degree in biology, but someone who did an undergraduate degree in engineering, in my case, history, people mm-hmm. whose minds think a little bit differently, and then they, they want to come together in unique ways. And I, I think this is clearly going to can be an unintended good consequence of it. One of the key parts here that I think is missing, and it's going to be probably guys like yourself and some of the people that you spoke about who are going to be able to mentor having people who have had experience on both sides. So as you go forward, finish, you know, hopefully go into some, do some clinical work and can then juxtapose those two worlds a little bit to then come back and mentor people and say, you know what, these are the benefits of, of this really sort of mixed approach of doing a little of everything as opposed to completely stepping away from clinical medicine or completely stepping away from, you know, entrepreneurship, things like that. Where is that role for that sort of mentorship or experience in something that is so new going to come from? That's a really good question. And uh, actually, it touches on something that I I wanted to mention from the previous question, which is, I think it's great that we're having people from non-traditional backgrounds entering medicine, whether that's design, art, uh, the liberal arts, um, engineering, etc. But, you know, there are a lot of people who love biology. Yeah. And physiology and psychology and their passion is in what I guess we might consider more traditional disciplines and there's nothing wrong with that and that's really valuable. So my question is then uh, how can we provide opportunities and resources for people who may have more traditional backgrounds so to speak but for them to be able to work with people who are outside of those domains and find a way for them to still add value. Yeah. Um because we want to make this an inclusive uh, and when I say we and this I mean everybody working in healthcare. Right. How do we make healthcare and technology and innovation in those disciplines inclusive? This um, is the question, right? This is the piece yeah. of, so we have all these different interests now and we have medical schools and residency programs that are rather fixed. You know, they've, most of them have done things the same way for decades. Um, mm-hmm. It's, these are some of those really challenging questions. And as people sort of move forward in order to get the best out of them, to help them really reach their goals and to maximize their potential, it definitely takes some flexible thinking and it is going to take some mentorship. It is going to take someone with a little bit of experience to kind of guide people. The best professors at medical schools may not be able to do that because they haven't necessarily practiced outside of their clinical sphere. Nothing wrong with that. It's not a criticism. It's just there's going to need to be sort of a faculty in a way to kind of guide young, young minds. I don't mean to sound patronizing or condescending when I say that, but to guide people who are coming up uh, to really maximize their potential and get the most out of it while also providing the best possible good for their community. No, I I totally agree. And um, to to answer your uh, original question, which is, um, you know, what can we do to make more mentorship? I, I think this really goes back to the larger concept of culture And when you go to an institution or a place that is known to have excellent culture, uh, Mayo Clinic is known to have an excellent culture. Google is known to have an excellent culture. What does that mean? I think in the context of our current topic, two things stand out to me. One of them is accessibility of the people. And the second thing is very connected to the first, and that's the quality or the feel of the mentorship at that institution. And if I can distill these into, I guess, two sort of practical calls to action. For the people who are mentees, people who seek 
mentors. I think it's really important to be proactive and also to seek many types of mentors. Uh, I draw on mentors from many different disciplines. Most of them are not within academic medicine, although most of my important mentors are. And I think that's really important because different mentors will give you different perspectives. And that's, that's just so important. And the second call to action is really for the mentors. Be accessible. You know, be willing to take the meeting, grab the coffee, answer the email. For somebody where you don't see an immediate payoff to your own career or someone you can collaborate with, but just someone who wants to meet you and learn from you. And, you know, I think that's a necessary step. You have to meet them halfway. So seeking out mentors and also for mentors to be accessible, I think those are two critical building blocks towards building a more open and innovative culture, no matter where you are. Not to give you more to do, because you're already a busy guy. What you (laughs) just said is something I I hope that you and people like you are really able to leverage, because that is, that's what's going to launch this sort of thing into the stratosphere and make it more inclusive, more engaging, is to help people understand where the potential lies, what people are trying to do. The vast majority of folks who want to try these things are not dilettantes. They're not chasing a buck. They maybe really do have a really interesting and unique vision, and it's something that we should support. Um, I I hope that that's something that is able to really be pushed because I do worry that there's going to be a little bit of a backlash. You know, these articles that kind of talk about people, they're just going into Silicon Valley and things. It doesn't necessarily paint them in the best light. If I'm, that was my take. Uh, yeah, there yeah. needs to be a balance to help people realize, wow, these are really bright heads and they are not chasing the next tech bubble. They are chasing ways to really improve the way we practice uh, and improve the way we deliver care at an individual level and also at a population level. I completely agree. And, and actually, um, what you just said reminded me of a really important point I forgot to mention. We really need to involve patients earlier and more and in more meaningful ways in the technology innovation process. And this is something that I have become more interested in and really was exposed to in a profound way at uh, the Medicine X conference at Stanford, which has a unique focus on involving patients, not only in their care, but on coming up with new ways to deliver that care and treat them. And I think this is important because it provides a sense of perspective and focus onto what the real problems are. And everybody has competing incentives and different interests. The hospital administrator is concerned with uh, the financial bottom line of the institution. The clinician, the academic clinician, is balancing a demanding career, needs to publish research, patient care. Uh, The student is trying to learn his or her most knowledge so that they can do well on their board exams. And patients are trying to get better and recover and go back to their lives. But I think Uh, And maybe this sounds idealistic, but uh, I'm young enough where this hasn't been beaten out of me. Everybody in this system is doing it because we want to make the world a better place. And I know as cliched as that sounds, especially in lieu of what you just said about Silicon Valley, every other pitch, you know, we want to make the world a better place through our startup. Um, We in medicine, we do that in a pretty focused, tangible way. We do that by curing a disease or at least alleviating the symptoms. And I think if we can maintain focus on what really matters, improving patient satisfaction, reducing the cost of care, reducing mortality, meaningful things like that, then all the other stuff just kind of happens, right? The culture is awesome because people are working on the right thing. Uh, You can generate economic value uh, and you can generate profit for your investors. All of those things follow, in my opinion, 
taking care of the most important thing, which is a focus on improving patient care. You know, the, the idealist can say, we want to make the world a better place. The pragmatist would say, we all have skin in the game. But mm-hmm. the point is the same. We're all sort of in the same, we're all in the same pot. We're all in the same boat trying to, you know, do these things um, and, and to make them better. Yeah, do you and- feel like most of the people that are doing what you're doing mm-hmm. in terms of, of having that level of skin in the game and that level of connection, do you think that most, like yourself, do you think you'll probably spend some time practicing clinical medicine when you finish your PhD and subsequently your MD? So I'm not sure about that yet because I think there are a lot of opportunities to add value in different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, And I haven't gone through all of M3 and M4, third and fourth year of med school. So I don't know what clinically interests me yet. For our Um, listeners, just so that they kind of understand, those are the the last, the second half of medical school is really when you spend time on clinical rotations. You're in the hospital, you're in the clinic, you're you're seeing patients, you're part of the medical team, just to give them a little bit of context as to what you're talking about. But yeah, when you go into that, that's when you'll really get immersed in what it's like to be in the clinical setting. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my framework for how I'm going to approach that decision when the time comes is really um, how can I optimize the overall impact that I'm going to have in my field? Mm-hmm. And the way that I'm going to assess that is to look at the opportunity costs of not doing the other thing. So, uh, you know, I can look at certain role models, people I consider mentors like Nate Gross. He's the co-founder of Rock Health and Doximity. Uh, which are two absolutely amazing companies. Well, one's a venture fund, technically. But he didn't pursue a residency, and one might argue that he's having a tremendous impact on healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at the other, on the other hand, you have physicians who go through your traditional clinical training route and then pursue other interests at the other end. Um, and this can range from, I guess, what the NIH considers the ideal physician scientist. You finish residency, you do a fellowship, you join the faculty, and you do some research. Um, all the way to people who have transitioned um, out of clinical medicine. Maybe that's not their main focus anymore, Mm -hmm. but they leverage those clinical experiences they have, whether it's in a policy or a management or administrative role. Uh, And I think all of those are fantastic careers, and medical students shouldn't necessarily feel constrained to any one path. Um, And another thing that I've learned going through, uh, you know, founding Forge and leading these teams and working with amazing people is that it is very, very difficult to predict the future in specific ways. Probably, it's probably possible. But I don't know what opportunities will show up, you know, in a year from now, five years from now. So it's really hard to say. And you may also get on a clinical rotation and feel like, you know what? There's nothing else I'd rather do. This is where I belong. I need to be in the hospital seeing patients or I need to be in the office, you know, working with whatever population it may be. Um, Exactly. That's also in the cards. You know, that's what happened Mm -hmm. to me. I was like, this is wonderful. I love this and this is what I want to do. Um, and you know, I I think it's great that you're going to go into it, at least with that open mind. Obviously you have some really interesting and exciting things ahead of you. But that clinical piece, the fact that it's still ahead and you yourself and others can really enter it with that open mind that, hey, I'm open to whatever may come and, and whatever road my career wants me to go down, my, you know, I think is, is, is definitely commendable. I want to ask you one last question. There's a quote that I found. I was, you know, I was doing a little bit of background and I found a really interesting interview with you on YouTube. And you had a comment that I wanted to just explore a little bit. You mm-hmm. said that there's, there's much fewer artificial barriers between your idea and what you can create in the world. And I, I love that. But I want you to give us a little bit of context around what you meant when you said that. Uh, it was on a Health Connect interview. Yeah, um, I yeah. think that captures a lot of the stuff that you're doing. And it captures a lot of what is changing so fast, why it's changing so fast. Where, where were you with that when you said it? Where are you now with it as you move forward? 
So I, I first said that quote um, in the context of selecting my field of research. In undergrad at UCLA, I worked on tissue engineering and nanotechnology, and it was it was a blast. Really, really interesting stuff. Uh, stem cells and regenerative medicine are undeniably going to be a huge part of the future of medicine. And by future, I'm talking the next 15 to 30 years. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to see um, new diseases or uh, old diseases being treated in new ways in the clinic using these technologies. But for my graduate work, uh, I'm actually focused much more on data science and information engineering, statistics, computational approaches to looking at clinical data. And I said that uh, software has fewer artificial barriers between what you're trying to do and the reality of that success because software has some incredible advantages compared to physical science. One is speed. Computers are extremely, extremely fast. They can perform computation, much certain computation, much faster than the human brain, and it can do things at scale that nobody can do. Um, through the advent of smartphones, mobile technology, and wearables, you know, have physical ubiquity of what previously was uh, physically limited computation, meaning that now we can reach billions of people uh, through their phones. We can take data from billions of people, um, and then we can perform computation on it. We can make predictions, and we can interact with them. So there's speed and scale via technology, especially mobile and the Internet, that has never been afforded to healthcare before. Another issue is noise. Software, one of the good and bad things is that it does exactly what you tell it, which means that none of my code works because it's doing exactly what I told it to. <laughs> but um, there's less noise. And when I was performing research uh, on the bench in a wet lab setting, things would fail all the time. And part of the skill of becoming a good researcher is being able to troubleshoot that and going back and figuring out, you know, did I accidentally pipette too much of reagent B, or did I not have my incubator settings just right? And Eric, I'm breaking out in a cold sweat. You're talking about labs, and I'm going back to my organic chemistry days, and ugh, oh yeah, <laughs> I'm having a very visceral response. Yeah, I, I still remember um, <laughs> that part of the uh, gosh, which building was it? Oh, I, please don't even bring it up because I yeah. don't remember it. <laughs> it's all it, gone. It, it was a long time ago. <laughs> it's it's funny. Real quick side comment. Um, back at UCLA uh, in the organic chem labs, yeah. I think suffering uh, builds friendships. Yeah. And some of my closest friendships that still last to this day were my chemistry lab partners oh, at awesome. UCLA. So it's kind of funny. Oh, that's great. Um, but but I think software has much less noise. Yeah. Uh, there's much less variability and randomness. And it's really exciting because we're finally seeing people marry this concept of bits and atoms, uh, the software and the hardware world. Um, and there's, I'm trying to remember the name of uh, these companies, Emerald Therapeutics is one of them. But there are these Bay Area Silicon Valley startups that are applying computation to research approaches. And then they're using robotics to reduce the variation. So basically, it's almost as if you go to Amazon and you order uh, shampoo, but instead you log into their cloud-based platform and you order an experiment and you mail in your samples and they will automate the entire analysis process. They'll run Western blots, ELISA's, genomic analyses. Um, actually, I'm not sure but if they can do that last one yet. But anyways, they'll do the experiments in a consistent, robotic, automated fashion, and they're hoping to reduce the huge problem of variability in science. Um, and one last comment, uh, we're starting to see some really interesting intersections between software and biology um, in the context of genomics, which is, in some opinions, uh, an information science of sorts. So now you can use deep learning approaches 
and other machine learning techniques to predict whether a certain type of drug will affect a certain drug target. So now this is opening up entire new opportunities for drug development and discovery. Uh, you're also looking at understanding the pathways of complex diseases using large sets of genomic data. We couldn't do that 10 years ago, 20 years ago, because the computers were too slow. But we've kept advancing those fields, and I think I'm really excited uh, to see what the next 10 years brings in terms of software and medicine. That's that artificial barrier just melting away. As we move it, forward, these barriers that we had 10, 15 years ago, they're vanishing. And it's incredibly exciting that there's institutions like Emory and others around the country that are pushing this, that there's people like you who are really grabbing the reins and, and running with it. Um, the the well, path that you're on is a fascinating one, and we're all going to be watching. Thank you. Um, if I could make one last comment on, sure. on actually the last topic. Um, so a lot of the listeners might be hearing you know, some of these examples and thinking, okay, that's great. That's a startup in Silicon Valley, or that's nice, but you know, I'm, I'm a primary care physician. What does genomics have to do with my everyday practice? And, and I think that's uh, an obvious way to think about this. But instead, I think it's, it's more interesting to think about how can these advances in mobile technology, wearables, computing, et cetera, be applied to a problem that I face every day yeah. in my practice, whether yeah. you're an ENT, ortho, you know, OB-GYN, whatever, there are tons of things that you do every day that could be made better, faster, cheaper, more effective, more safe for your patients that's using this barrier. technology. Yes, that's so, the next barrier, that, that sort of understanding barrier, implementation barrier, dissemination barrier. Yeah. One barrier breaks down, but these other ones do kind of come up. Yep. It's going to be a, it's going to be a fascinating pathway that you're on and uh, people can find you. You've got a great website with a lot of material on it. I'm just going to go ahead and plug it for you. It's E-R-I-K-R-E-I-N-E-R-T-S-E-N.com, ericreinertsen.com. Find you on Twitter as well. Definitely though, for uh, if you haven't checked out the website, it's worth looking at. There's uh, just a ton of material about the work that you're doing, the the course that you taught at Demery. Forge is at forgehealth.org. Also definitely worth looking at. Uh, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. This is really interesting. And as things move forward, you are welcome to come back anytime. When you're on your internal medicine rotation and you just finished doing a couple of weeks in the ICU, I want you to come back on and tell me what your impressions were and, and how it's changed or impacted your thinking to kind of see what that juxtaposition of clinical medicine versus the work that you're doing now looks like. Oh, I can't wait for that. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Dr. Shapira. All right, Eric. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.